No, I thought um, I, I thought I would pass these out, not for you to do right now, but for you to have in front of you, and then when we end, you can do them and we can be done with it, okay? Uh, all right, so. I would like to start today, as we've started the last few Tuesdays, by talking about what happened on Monday. What happened in here yesterday? In particular, I was wondering if any of you took note of the podcast that we played. It just went right by. Well, I was struck by it because it was an invitation that came to us from the at-large audience. It was an expression of an audience that was constituting itself had constituted itself. They were inviting us to their court, the court of public opinion. In a sense, if one is looking for some understanding of the distinction between the court of law and the court of public opinion, I think you might find it in exactly that, that the court of public opinion is the court of the audience. And that audience invites us to participate. I was impressed by the way that podcast spoke to me, spoke to Becca, spoke to you inviting us to take advantage of them, to find the value that they have to offer us and to respond to it. It seemed to me in some way a bookend to the video piece that we showed before from an at-large participant who was articulating what resources that open environment had to offer us in a positive way. So worth noting and worth a thank you to who was it back? Jeff and yeah. Sandy. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Sandy. All right, so who's up today? We're going to charge through some, and then we're going to have a little conclusion. Richard, come on down. Good. All right. You guys have all heard from me at various points throughout the semester. Um, and and uh, at this point, I'm going to talk to you about my project, which is which I'm having a bit of, a bit of trouble with, so maybe I'll, I'll start there. Um, it's, it's a project that you've all heard about. It's about getting the extension school to implement an open courseware system, right? So we spent a whole day talking about this. We had a whole week on open ac ac academia and things like that. So um, I think that we've sort of hashed out 
the, you know, is it a good idea, is it a bad idea argument pretty significantly. Um, and what I'm faced with now is kind of a strategic question more than anything else um, about how to go about making that argument. And the reason I'm having trouble with that is not because I don't know what to say in the argument about, you know, the validity of opening things up and empathizing with professors who might be worried about it or with administrators who are worried about whether you're going to make any money or, you know, uh, everybody who might be concerned about, you know, losing the elite status of Harvard and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, I mean, I know what arguments make, but it's this question of not just how to make it, but to whom. Um, I feel part of the problem here is that this might not be an argument that is best made, at least at this stage, in the court of public opinion. Um, it's not made, obviously, in a legal court either. It seems like, you know, I'm trying to convince, uh, you know, probably first and foremost, Dean Schnagel of the, uh, of the extension school, and it seems like say, making a website that had an open, um, you know, an open letter to the Harvard Extension School about why it should open up and have open courseware or something would be kind of, uh, I don't know, jumping the gun. I mean, it, it seems like, I don't know, the first step might be writing a letter to Dean Schnagel and, and talking to him about it and getting, getting people involved. Because I think, actually, the other thing about this, about this project is it may turn out not to have that much of a... Um, that much conflict going on. The extension school, in a lot of ways, is moving in this direction anyway. Uh, obviously, this course is one example. Um, the uh, uh, Professor Malin is teaching a computer science course that he is sort of, as uh, Professor Nesson is here, avidly putting out online, available in as a podcast, um, videos with all the course material and stuff there, and it's really popular. Uh, Wired Magazine just named it sort of the most useful podcast online or something like that. Um, so uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty impressive. Um, and, and, you know, the Extension School is happy with that. The Extension School is liking that. So I guess the question here is, is, is more, I don't know, it's a question of form. How does one go about making this kind of argument where the audience, the decision maker, is a fairly small group of people rather than the whole court of public opinion? And what strategies that we've come up with in this class can still be useful there, I guess. So do you want to throw it open, Richard? I, I think I have. Yeah. UKB and Mike. You've got to show the extension school how it can make more money by having more Richard. Are you sure of that? Yes. Are you sure the mission of the extension school is to make money? Or is it possible that the mission of the extension school is to extend the educational product of Harvard without losing money? Well, if that is the mission, then they would have no objection at all to opening it up completely. Well, as I say, it's entirely possible that they're not going to have a whole lot of objection to it. I mean, they're moving in that direction already. Obviously, it wouldn't hurt to show them that, they could, that it would improve the bottom line rather than hurt it. I mean, that's clearly an argument I want to make. Um, on some level, whether it's just it's not going to, you know, you're not going to lose money or even, you know, it will, you know, increase the number of people who actually want to enroll in the class, uh, in courses. Um, but as I say, that's sort of, yeah, I think I know what arguments to make that, it, you know, that it's financially viable, that it won't hurt the reputation of Harvard, that it will be, you know, a public relations plus. These things I think I can, I know what to say. I'm thinking about how to say them and to whom to address them. Say about that. So why don't you tell us like why it's better in that way? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, we talked about this in class to some extent about. Um, maybe I should get back here. Um, to some extent about 
whether the sort of the goodwill public relations stuff will will offset um, the fact that maybe some people won't register for courses at the extension school because they don't have to anymore. Um, and we talked pretty extensively, uh, and Becca was sort of objecting to this, about the argument that could be made that, you know, having the courseware up online is not the same thing as opening up the whole of Harvard to anybody who wants it and therefore nobody will take stuff, but rather um, having it online will allow uh, people access to a, you know, a limited amount of stuff, the materials. Maybe you can listen to lectures, but you don't get to interact with everybody. You don't get to talk to everybody and all this sort of stuff. So that there would still be sort of a kind of premium content available through taking an extension school course or taking a, you know, arts and sciences course or whatever um, that people would still be willing to pay for so that you wouldn't lose, you know, sort of the financial viability. Richard, I have a thought. Yeah. One of the things that's seems to be more true with technology than many, many other things, is that a new idea is hard to grasp abstractly, but very easy when you see it demoed. Right. I was thinking about this. Make a, like if you could have a website that was sort of a mock-up of what, what this kind of thing should look like. Well, in a sense, you start by saying this course is, yeah, exactly. and Professor Malin's course mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Those are both attempts at demo. And the opportunity to make the demo so demonstrably successful along the metrics that you're talking about, right. you see you didn't lose money, you see, you see that, that sort of mm -hmm. thing, makes it uh, a winning argument. So one suggestion would be to address our thought here to how we could use the few remaining resources that we have as a class to make the demo more successful. Mm -hmm. And one of the thoughts that Becca and I had coming up to this finale here where many of you will not have had your opportunity to step to the front of the room and vet your projects is that providing that opportunity in the Second Life environment, in the context in which that at-large audience could actually participate and help, would be a way of making the demo more successful. Demonstrating the usefulness of having it open to so many at-large people. and Indeed. A convincing example. Mm -hmm. And the utility of having it open to students in the class mm -hmm. who are working on projects. Mm -hmm. um, so for that purpose, um, Beck, would you maybe say a word about when you think that might be appropriate, even up to and starting tonight? Um, yes, actually, tonight we have two hours of time in Second Life where there are going to be some people attending, um, hoping to discuss some content from the course. And I and they, I'm sure, would like nothing more than for a few of you to do the types of presentations that people are doing here of your projects in Second Life. So if there are some of you who haven't yet done a presentation who'd be interested in coming into Second Life tonight and doing that, um, and you'd be willing to, you know, raise your hands and volunteer, um, that would be great. And tonight is really the night to do it. Um, our class in Second Life is also wrapping up, so this is the chance. And ideally, we'll pick people who haven't done other presentations, but um, if you've already presented, like John, but you're the only one who's volunteering, then we'll have John come and present. 
uh, it's from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock tonight, and you could pick any time in that window that you'd be interested in coming to do it. And certainly anybody who wants to just come and hang out is welcome to come and hang out also, listen to presentations, or just talk to other people in the class. And if anybody is not comfortable yet getting into Second Life and getting to Berkman Island, I think Beck can facilitate that as well because um, once, once you're there, if she's aware, she can transport you to the right spot and you can sit down, which is not a hard thing to do, and after that it's all easy. It's all yeah, So please send me your avatar name so I know who you are, and I can help you this evening. And everybody else, please join us, too. Um, also, I'm in Second Life right now, uh, sort of playing around with the courtroom that we're building. And um, you do, at this point, have the quality of Internet access necessary in here if you want to download it and use it as our sort of a back channel to talk about what's happening in class while class is going on. We had about three people doing that yesterday during class. Um, and maybe we'd have a few more today. Nice idea. Another reason to keep the laptops open. So, Richard, I see you've been looking at the uh, there, Yeah, board. there are a few good ones up here, it seems. I mean, I'll go good. by the voting. They're all good. Yeah. They're all good. Right? Um, but obviously the most popular one is, is talking about, and this is the same idea that uh, Professor Nesson was already talking about, um, addressing, uh, addressing an argument to professors in the extension school. Maybe the argument ought to be not the Har that Harvard needs to open up the extension school, but maybe, hey, professors, you know, wouldn't it be great if you made this stuff available as sort of better examples of how great um, open courseware can be, and then um, that in itself would would perform the kind of argument uh, function that, that we're looking for of sort of suggesting to the extension school, okay, now you've got 15 professors out there who are making all this stuff available. Why don't you just have a kind of centralized place that makes this e an easier process? There's clearly a demand, and clearly it seems to be working well. So yeah, I think that's a good idea, actually, is addressing the professors um, of the extension school directly. Um, let's see. Uh, the the issue about the, about the uh, the Harvard name and the and the resume, obviously uh, putting it on your resume, um, is something we talked about a good bit. And it seems like um, the general consensus was you don't get generally degrees from the extension school, and I don't think this would change that in any way. Um, though there are a couple of there are a couple of programs there that that offer some kind of uh, credit that can be applied towards a degree to you know in um, from another from another school. So, oh, is that right? Okay, so some of them are. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Okay, they're not uh, not like BAs and stuff, but yes, I remember them. Okay. Really? On mic. Uh, yes, they, they offer undergraduate degrees and some graduate degrees at the Extension School. Um, Dean, who's running our video back there, is one of their recent and uh, most talented graduates. There you go. Um, this brings us, obviously, to the question of, of Extension School, open courseware, how much are they going to be the same thing, right? Um, and, and the idea of, you know, sort of premium content for the Extension School, where I guess you would get a degree in certain instances, as opposed to the open courseware where you wouldn't, right? And I think the, the idea is you still would not get a degree with the open, for open courseware stuff. Um, but it strikes me, Richard, that <clears throat> we're so much at the beginning of this. Mm -hmm. um, we're gaining experience as we go, and the, there's no necessity that decisions made now are somehow immutable. Sure. So the sure. idea of moving into this space with these questions on the table to be considered as we learn more about it seems 
very sensible to me, as opposed to saying, well, we can't do this because we have this block or that block or some other no, block. No, no, absolutely. I, the only reason I think that, the, that it is a sort of important question is because it's, it's one of the potential objections yes. right, that, that I'm trying to empathize with. Right? Wait yes. a minute, are people going to stop you know, enrolling at Harvard if they can get their degrees anywhere? Um, so it's a sort of way of addressing that, I think. All right. Well, uh, state your email yeah, address. Sure. I'd welcome uh, responses. It's R. Hepner, that's R-H-E-P-P-N-E-R, at law.harvard.edu. And I will also probably stop in on Second Life tonight. So um, talk to me at that gathering. All right. Excellent. Thank you, Richard. All right. Who's next? Come. I just created a new instance of the question tool. It's December 5, 2006, 2. All right. Um, well, first I'm going to address the topic of my uh, project, and then I'm going to address the means I'm using to promote it, uh, starting with the empathetic argument. Parents are doing... So before you go... Sorry. Tell everybody who you are. Okay. Uh, my name is LT Chiaccio. I'm a 2L here at Harvard Law School. Um, parents are doing the most important job in the world. That's pretty much unquestioned, accepted by our society. Uh, and they're doing a service to the community, specifically in the context of America, of raising the next generation. And very few people would question that certain elements of support of the next uh, generation are important for every single person who lives in the community to contribute to, such as funding school and things like that. Um, my project is basically about when does that go too far? When does it cross the line from supporting the next generation of supporting children to kind of supporting parents to an extent that they become almost a privileged class in society? My husband and I are spokespeople for No Kidding International, which is um, the largest social group in the world for people who don't have children. Regardless of the reason, uh, people are welcome to join if they're infertile, postponing, undecided, whatever. So uh, that kind of ties into the second part, which is um, my, my approach to the subject, which was using the networks I'd already established within this community to promote my project. Um, so what I tackled specifically was um, workplace benefits. When you're talking about benefits such as... Um, health insurance for children, uh, subsidized on-site daycare, um, insurance, things like that. It's basically part of the overall salary package. So when you're including things that are only of utility, that are only of benefit to a certain subset of your employees, essentially you're paying them a higher wage because of their situation in life, because of their lifestyle, because of their choices, uh, even though they might be doing the same amount of work. So with that in mind, first thing I did was I started a blog. Oops. Let's pause for a second. And this is about the second part um, of what I'll be talking about, my approach to the subject, 
which is, uh, first, I'm launching sort of this blog as a bigger project. This is going to be an ongoing project, something that goes beyond this class. I already run a blog called Child Free News, which just kind of reposts news articles that are relevant to the, to the community. But this, the idea of this is to kind of have a central place for advocacy, because even though it's a huge portion of the population, there's no sort of central organization. No kidding is the only real big organization for people who don't know kids, and it really has nothing to do with advocacy or politics or anything. It's just a social group, people to get together and have dinner and things like that. So the first idea was to kind of create some sort of centralized place where people could post different advocacy projects. And I've already had a couple of other things um, up there. Uh, New Michigan law recently passed that making, making it illegal for men to leave pregnant women or stop supporting them if a court can find that they did it in order to coerce them to having abortions. So that got posted up there. Uh, recent promo, um, posting of Bush of an anti-birth control. Sorry. That's kind of a side issue. Um, Michigan just passed a law last week making it a crime for a man to leave a pregnant woman or divorce her, move out, stop supporting her financially, if the court can find that he did it to coerce her into having an abortion. So that was posted on the blog as well as a, as a different subject matter for, for as a different issue. Wow. That's very impressive. <laughs> and, and, the, and then the, and the remedy, the court's injunction, is you may not leave your wife? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think, that, I think that might not be a, a case for a, a specific <laughs> injunction. That probably is just criminal penalties. Uh -huh. Otherwise, you have sort of uh, imprisonment issues, I guess. So, a woman can legally have an abortion, but a man can't, can't, can only do so much to convince her to have one. So, it's also a men's right issue. That's, that's another topic. Mine is specifically about workplace benefits, but I was just kind of pointing out that how this blog that I created in order to launch the project has other issues. Um, the, the person who started No Kidding um, posted something about uh, the recent appointment of Bush of an anti-birth control advocate to the family planning office, which is an issue for lots of people. But... Moving on, what I did was I launched um, a website on the topic. Basically, what I'm advocating is a cafeteria plan. I knew this is a very controversial issue, especially because of all the things I talked about earlier, parents doing this huge job, they have enough to worry about. I'm not exactly going to start feeling sorry for the people who you know, go skiing on weekends instead of going to birthday parties and uh, you know, have quiet dinners with their husbands instead of having to deal with watching Barney or whatever. So. Because there's not a lot of uh, sympathy, this isn't exactly a historically discriminated against group or anything like that. All I'm advocating for is equality, and uh, the center of my um, the center of my plan is based on something that a major company, a major employer, Xerox, is already doing, which is it's having this cafeteria plan. So they have all these different benefits that an employee can choose from. And each person gets an, allow, an allotted uh, set dollar amount of benefits. And they can choose whatever benefits they want up to that set dollar amount. So parents are going to get their daycare or their child health insurance or whatever else they need. But the people without kids are going to get elder care for their uh, aging parents, education credits, and lots of different things. So kind of balances it out. So that's the, the advocacy of my project. So, that mine so LT, questions. before we throw it open, sure. let me just see if I can focus what it might make sense to throw it open to do. Um, I think it might make sense to see if this audience can empathize with you. You, you are married. Yes. And you have decided that you don't want children. That's correct. And you and your husband are representative of a class of people 
married who don't want or have children for some reason. Yeah. And you as a class, you describe yourself as going out to dinners when other people are at birthday parties. And you're probably more well-off as a class, are you? Generally as a class, yes. As a class. So, so you, you, you're, you're not a traditionally understood focal point of discrimination. That's very true. And yet what you're describing is a societal structure which puts tremendous premium on bearing children and supporting the people who bear the children, which disadvantages you. And that's the reason I wouldn't call us discriminated against in any sense of the word. What I would call us is invisible. Um, for a couple of reasons. This is a new phenomenon. I mean, especially since birth control has only been around from the 60s. People really didn't have a choice, historically speaking, so it's a new phenomenon that way. Also, there's a social stigma against it. Maybe not where I live in New York, but in a huge part of the country, a lot of the people I've met from all over the place, I go to annual conventions every year for the No Kidding thing and meet people from all over the country, and a lot of people face an enormous amount of social stigma. They think there's something wrong with them, what's wrong with you, you're not a real woman, if you don't want to have kids. Um, so a lot of people are hesitant to even admit that they're in that position. So with so many people just being uh, uh, silenced by the social stigma and even acknowledging that they don't want to have children, it's basically an invisible group. Because the people right. that, okay. So, suggestions. Oh, I should, I should kind of continue on in terms of methodology. What I did was I found people who were already creating really good things on the Internet, podcasts, zines, things like that, and I asked them to uh, contribute uh, to the website. So I've had a couple of people, um, you know, the major podcast on the subject is running a two-week series about it as well. She's interviewing a college professor on the subject next week. Thoughts, reactions? So, from my perspective, I, I do want to have children, and I worry about it a lot um, because I feel like it's an irresponsible thing to do. And I, f I do feel, because we have a big population problem already, and um, I feel grateful for people who actually are making the choice not to do it since it basically seems like a selfish decision. I wonder whether that plays into your, the advocacy that your group does. It's really hard to get people to sympathize with that perspective. Um, in some, maybe in this setting, a, a little bit easier, but I think uh, largely a lot of people say that there isn't a population problem, or they say, well, yeah, but look at the Western world. Uh, the Western world, even though America's re um, replacing itself, a lot of countries in Western Europe and things like that are not. Um, I have a problem with that particular response because it has sort of implications of maybe racism or ethnocentrism. Um, but that, that's the response that, that we usually get in terms of that. Um, it's hard to tell parents that they're making a selfless decision. Our, our society perceives of it as this entirely selfless act because um, it's not easy. I, I do free, freely and, and readily admit that. Um, but, yeah, people make the decision to be, be parents, ideally, because it's something that they get they get something out of it as well. So there are things on both sides in that. Okay. All right, I'm going to take uh, this one, disproportionately on women. Take this one here. Yeah, disproportionately on women in many fields lag behind because 
Read it out loud. Sorry. Okay. Childcare fall, falls disproportionately on women in many fields. Women lag behind men because they cannot manage childcare and other childbearing costs while maintaining a shop. Yeah, that's true. And I actually, uh, when I when I address my um, the contrary point, that's one of my main points. Is that if we don't have these, uh, if we don't have this kind of maternity leave and daycare and uh, other support for women, the effect of it is is going to be that fewer women are in the workforce, and that's a very uh, unfortunate situation. Uh, my 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 response to that is twofold. Uh, first of all, what I'm advocating isn't taking away any of those benefits. It's just kind of balancing out those benefits by, by adding other benefits that people who aren't taking advantage of that. I do recognize that it is important that women stay in the workplace and to a point of a you know, critical mass, not a few token women in the higher upper echelons. But my other point with that is that is something that is essentially a choice in women. And I have a problem with feminism saying, you know, well, you know, women do most of the childcare, so child, uh, for, so um, child's issues are women's issues. Women are choosing to do most of the childcare. Um, this might be a little bit controversial, but they marry men who aren't going to do their share, and it's 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 mostly a man's <laughs> men's fault that that happens. They're not doing their share at home. Um, so why should the uh, remedy for that, for what men aren't doing at home, be on childless women? It just seems a little bit unfair to place one this one group in society and have them kind of make up for what men are lagging behind for. Sure. I I think that my husband wants to take his fair share in child rearing, but uh, it's not a very easy thing for him to do because he really has no benefits available to him. He can't take time off and. There's an extreme pressure on him not to leave his job, whereas I have a, an excuse for leaving my job that's considered to be reasonable. His excuse is not considered reasonable by his employers. And so he's really sort of limited in the option to take that over. He has to make an even larger career sacrifice than I would have to make. So you, uh, or, or what you're saying is basically workplaces aren't as understanding of men taking off time as they are for women taking off time? Yeah, I think that's pretty clear. That's that's true in some workplaces. There are other workplaces I've heard where men, if they take off time for their kids, they're heroes, and women, women if they do it, are, are looked down upon in more traditional roles. So I, I think that you you should stick to if, if you think that there is a policy um, that your policy is better for some reason, then you should like if if the the, the thing your the cafeteria plan furthers some social goal that's useful, then that should be the strength of your argument. But I don't think you should s stick your argument, as I saw on the webpage, to this idea that, like, there are benefits. Part of the salary is this, is this like, people who have kids get a bigger salary because people who have massive disabilities also get a much bigger salary by that argument. And, and there are all kinds of things that, that are built into a salary package that some people take advantage of and other people don't. And so it just where do you draw the line in terms of equality, right? I mean, if someone has carpal tunnel, are you going to demand, and you don't have carpal tunnel, are you going to demand the $80 that they get towards their fancy keyboard? You mean in terms of, like, disability? Yeah. I mean, there are all kinds of sort of... I would draw the line of choice. At someone doesn't choose to have carpal tunnel. Someone chooses to have kids. Okay. It's tricky, right? Because there are a lot of things, like, you could say, you could say, well, you have... You need to go to the doctor. You need a you need a, um, a quadruple bypass because you smoked. 
Well, I mean, in terms of disability insurance, you're right. There are going to be things that they're getting out of a company. Um, but in terms of just plain old health insurance, the company itself is not paying a higher premium for people with medical care. The, the, the health insurance companies are the ones paying that, not, not the company. So it's not coming out of the salaries of everyone else. Uh, but in terms of disability, you're right. When it, get, when it crosses that threshold, I think that employers are the ones paying that uh, disability insurance. I'm not, I'm not sure whether that's private insurance companies or, co or corporations. I'd have to find that. That would be an important po point of distinction. I think there's another place to draw the line, which is that in the case of disabilities, we're subsidizing a minority of the population, whereas in the case of people choosing not to have children, um, subsidizing the majority who do want to have children, there's, sort of, there's a you know, central sort of democratic uh, objection that the minority can make, that they're just being outnumbered and that the majority is taking their money for their own benefit. That's a very good point. Thank you. Oh, well, I was, I was going to respond partly to what, to what Becca was saying earlier, and, and it fits into this too. I mean, the, the, whole, the whole point of, you know, that, that benefits get, uh, say, accrued to women for, um, for maternity leave and, and child-rearing and stuff more than they do to men, I mean, is really an argument for the kind of cafeteria plan that, that we're proposing here, that, you know, I'm a father, so I'm going to pick the paternity leave option. I'm not a father, so I'm not. Or, you know, um, I'm going to pick, you know, elder care or whatever. Um, I mean, something where the employee gets to choose from, you know, a given list, list that's the same for everyone, gets to choose which ones he or she wants, at least formally is, you know, providing that kind of equality. Now, you know, what kind of expectations people have for uh, men taking off time versus women are going to be different, obviously. But in that sense... You know, this this is better than the cafeteria plan actually addresses that that problem pretty well. Thanks. Okay, uh, you said earlier that you're not a discriminated minority in the traditionally understood sense of the word. That you have more disposable income, and the real problem is uh, invisibility. But this seems so that makes kind of begs the question of what this is. Is this really a thing to get? some more of that disposable income back in your pocket, or is this kind of a thing about getting recognized, kind of a, an anti-invisibility measure? Yeah, I, I mean, it is an anti-invisibility measure. Um, it, it, is, it, it is partially about the money thing, though. Um, one of the things that I go into on my website is some statistics I found, uh, very interestingly enough, that white, um, white-collar affluent women are the ones taking advantage of these. Minorities, uh, black women... Poor women are not the ones taking advantage of these, first of all, because those kind of employers are less likely to offer benefits at all, let alone these kind. And just uh, from a cultural perspective, it's been found that uh, the other, other kinds of cultures rely on extended family and neighbors and uh, networks, but what, um, kind of the, the Caucasian middle, middle or upper class uh, women are the ones doing this because they have theories about how... the you know, especially in terms of daycare, it, it, it educates their children better and things like that. So in terms of disposable income to disposable income, what we're essentially doing is taxing a wide group of people to subsidize the wealthy and, or to subsidize at least the middle class. And, and that, is, that is something I have a problem with. I, I, personally, my, my own ideology has no problem with subsidizing people who are, who are actually in need, but that's not what's happening here. So even though you could, could say generally that the childless people who I'm advocating for will have disposable income, that's also not 100% true. A lot of times there are people who are, are poor and don't have kids, and that's why they don't have kids. That happens as well. 
So I want to sort of get back to this issue of whether or not you're being disadvantaged by supporting the care of others. Because if you look at it from a historical perspective, though, haven't you benefited from a society in the past that provided benefits to your parents that assisted in raising you? So haven't you – I mean, m maybe you haven't accrued the full benefit because you're not gaining benefit for raising your own children, but at, at least you've received, you have received some societal benefit from a society that encourages spending on these measures, though, haven't you? Um, to a certain point, that's true. A lot of these things are new. So uh, in some sense, to the extent that this whole family-friendly America um, and these subsidies are, are kind of a new development, that's not exactly true. Um, as to your other point, it's to the extent that we have taken advantage of that, um, I don't think the history of a redistribution of wealth according to someone's lifestyle is necessarily means that it, it should continue. It doesn't, I mean, there's no... Well done. Thank you. <laughs> it's tight back there. Now, how are you going to get the podcast thing? Uh, I just, oh, you did. I oh, just you put it. this Good up. Very Are we ready? Ready to go. All right, I'm Ann Hubert, and I'm going to play you my original podcast, but just to give you a sense of my topic, um, it's about my topic is about self-finance candidates for political office. So basically, people who fund their own campaigns with their personal wealth. And my argument is to people who believe that this hurts democracy. And my argument is that it doesn't hurt democracy. And that, in fact, given our current money system in politics, this might be a better option than many of the others that are realistically available. Um, I guess what I'm asking of you is to help me think about the best sort of way and method to frame this argument um, to reach this sort of amorphous group of people who generally don't like self-finance candidates. Um, I've thought of doing a series of podcasts or a sort of blog or informational site that references a bunch of the you know, think tanks and other sorts of organizations that provide information about the topic, but I'm feeling sort of uninspired by that and thought maybe you guys would have some other creative ideas. So I'm going to play my, my uh, original podcast just to give you a sense of some of the arguments I'm thinking of, and then we can go from there. Just one day before the midterm elections that promise to save your hopes for our country, or confirm your worst fears, depending on your politics, there's one topic that has been talked about and talked about and talked about, and the story still isn't over, money in politics. I'm here not to talk about the latest problems in campaign finance or all the other tiresome arguments you've heard so many times before. Instead, I'm going to think for a minute about people who bring their own money into the race for public office. I'm someone who thinks that the money system in U.S. politics is broken. I think I'm not alone with that thought. 
but my perspective on these candidates, self-financed as they're often called, may be unique. I'm asking for just a minute or two of your time to hear me out on this idea. When I worked in the Senate for John Corzine, former chairman of Goldman Sachs, who broke all previous records of spending personal wealth in his campaigns for senator and then governor of New Jersey, I heard all of the criticisms. He bought his seat, people would say. What happened to the debating the issues, I'd hear. Other people had arguments about how self-financed candidates hurt the system. They sabotage the system and they exert too much influence over whose voice and which arguments get heard. They're elite and disconnected from normal people, not who we should have representing us, especially in such high office. To these critics, I say, you may be right. These guys have a luxury that isn't available to most of the rest of us. Plastering their faces on billboards, buying radio spots and TV ads shouldn't replace real debate on the issues. Elected officials shouldn't be out of touch. They should know and understand the struggles of real people. But I also will add that under the current system of campaign finance rules in the US, self-financed candidates offer voters a louder voice in their government and make democracy work the way it was supposed to. They answer to voters, not to donors. If we're gonna talk in terms of buying seats, the truth is somebody buys every seat. Big oil, big tobacco, trial lawyers, you name the interest group. And so given that that's the way our system works today, if it's up to me, I'd rather a candidate buy her independence from big moneyed interests by financing the campaign herself and then be accountable to voters. Thanks for listening. Okay, so I offer that not as an example of the most finely produced podcast, but to give you a sense of what some of the arguments are that I might think about making. Is this the right instance here? Yeah. Okay. So I guess with that, I'd love to open it up if anyone has ideas of sort of the form this might take. So, and what's your question? Your question is, you've done the podcast, you've got your argument, but you are not enthused about how you're projecting it. Exactly. Exactly. So, all right, we need some brilliant ideas. <laughs> You got a, I mean, not this is not a suggestion. This is a criticism. You've got you've got a real problem with uh, with uh, empathy here because you don't you're not advocating the solution to any problem from my point of view. Uh, self financed candidates, according to my uh, perspective, get elected over and over and over again, and they only do that because people the majority of people vote for them. So it sounds like the majority of people already agree with you. Well, I think. I don't know if it's the majority. I think a lot of people say that the candidate, the self-financed candidates who do win, win because they crowd out all the other voices. They plaster their faces on billboards and on sides of buses and buy their way into office. And so these critics would argue even if they win, it's sort of not legitimate. It's not a fair fight. It's not a fight on the grounds that these races should be fighting about. Okay, okay, fine. But you're implicitly arguing that people in the ballot box are not voting their own inclination, but rather doing whatever the ballot, uh, the billboard and the television are telling them to. And people don't like that kind of message. You're right. That's not my message. That's the message of my critics, I guess, you're, or of the, the people I'm addressing who I disagree with. And you're saying maybe they don't have a good yeah, argument. Yeah, I in the guess first this place. is not a criticism at all. It's, an, it's a total affirmation, but why make this, uh, why make this an empathic argument? Hmm. Pass back. Well, I guess. I tell you what, Ann, turn around and take a look here. Oh, yeah. 
I'm convinced. I'm convinced that there shouldn't not be self-financed candidates. Is there any chance self-financed candidacy won't be allowed? Are you advocating against change? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess in the sense, I guess I'm arguing against arguments that I hear in the world. You're right. There's little chance that self-financed candidacy is not going to be allowed. I think people involved in the system have too much incentive. You know, the parties who have to do fundraising love when wealthy people want to run for office and pay for it themselves. That's less money that they need to raise and less work they need to put into that race. So in that sense, that's true. I'm not... I am sort of defending the status quo, I guess, in a sense. So maybe that's part of why I'm having trouble coming up with a compelling way to frame this. I hadn't thought of it that way. Uh -huh. Aaron? Um, well, just, you know, I guess one kind of suggestion you could make that could maybe put a little, I don't know, light a fire under people to more falling on that last comment. You talked about how political parties love self-financed uh, mm -hmm. candidates because they have to spend less money. But, you know, you could also make an argument about how self-financed candidates are kind of a threat to, you know, political parties and like a stranglehold because, you know, it's possible that they're not as beholden to political parties. I guess some of them are and some of them aren't. But that seems one way in which, you know, self-financed candidates could be an engine for change on an issue, you know, a lot of people don't like the two-party system and that could be an angle for you. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so... If you're talking about self-financed candidates who are who have the Democratic or Republican banner, I think parties love them. But if you're talking about self-financed candidates who are independent, parties hate them in a lot of races right. because they, in close races, they draw votes. And you know, in a race where candidates are tied 45-45, an independent candidate can screw up an entire race. So I think you have to focus on. Not talking about, I mean, you have to, because you're talking about self-financed candidates, but you didn't say, you said that parties love them, but parties don't always love them. Yeah, you're right. So like a Ross Perot or something. I mean, yeah. I mean, no one hated, like, no one hated Ross Perot because that race right. ended up, you know, working out for Bill Clinton. But like, in, in smaller races, they're definitely much more of an issue. Yeah. So maybe focusing on, do you think then focusing on a few specific examples like, those, maybe that would be more compelling. I don't know. I'm trying to think, okay, so what does that mean for how I structure the, the project? I'll think on that. Thanks. So, Anne, let me just see if I can explore the origins of this project. You actually work for Corzine. Right. And he was like the quintessential self-financed candidate. And you liked him. And you felt the people that were yelling at him because he was self-financed were somehow naive. I think the latter is the most important. I did like him, but that, that's not my... My point isn't to defend Corzine. My point is to, that if you want to attack some of these folks, it's not... That's a dumb way to attack them. You're not going to win there. That's, that's not the place to tear these people down. One of the things you acceded to KB on that I was curious about is his thought was that self-financed candidates win. My, my impression is they that self-financed... They hardly ever win. They often don't win. That's true. And, I mean, Corzine almost didn't win the first time around. And a lot of the polling showed that that was partly because of the money. They don't in the win race. because there's a lot of feeling that self-finance somehow isn't fair. It's rich people buying office. Or that the wealth doesn't represent average people, I think, is some of the perception. In his case, the polling showed that a lot of women 
feared Wall Street money and that women didn't respond well to that, even if his policies were in line with things that the women should have agreed with. Well, it does sound to me as if the challenge for you in some way is to identify the constituency you're trying to persuade. Yeah. And the reason why you want to persuade them. And if I'm getting it right, one reason why you want to persuade them is, in fact, in your view at least, there's a bias against self-financed candidates that actually keeps some people who would really could be really encouraged yeah. out of the picture. And you'd like, to, you'd like to moderate that. Right. Yes, Brianna. Um, this is a little bit sort of outside what I think our project was originally designed to be, but what about um, finding blogs or websites where people are sort of advocating? There, there must be sites out there advocating against self-financed candidates mm -hmm. and, or places where people are discussing the issues with that. What about sort of going to all those sites and inserting your voice into their discussions? I mean, I don't know how you would then pull that together into a website for this, but... I mean, that might be a way to really see whether you can change people's minds through, you know, the comment sections on a blog. I, I mean, I don't know if Professor Nesson that would comply with, you know, the project parameters, but yeah, I think that might be one way since there isn't necessarily sort of a group of people you need to attract to your website. Right. That would maybe solve the problem of right. trying to stir something up. Right. I could interject where people are already stirred up. I think that sounds interesting. I think another another uh, direction you could go is to kind of you talked about some of the big special interests who have a lot of exert a lot of control in politics based on their donations. So it'd be interesting to take candidates who have financed their campaigns through like maybe you know really targeted special interests, and then I'm sure there's actually probably already studies out there that show yeah. this, but kind of talk about their voting records and how closely correlated they are to the interests that they raise their money through. And you could kind of use your website to sort of like. Um, to, to kind of show and compare their voting records and kind of their, you know, um, that the heavy influences those industries have over them compared to maybe some of the self-financed candidates who are out there and talk about how independent they've, they've voted. Maybe, hmm. maybe they have, maybe they haven't, but um, that'd be one way to go about it. Yeah, okay. All right, tell us All your right. email. Thank you. My email is ahubert, A-H-U-B-E-R-T, at law.harvard.edu. Thanks, guys. Great, thank you. All right, who's next? Come. Hi, uh, I'm Josh. And initially, I was going to do my project on uh, this situation in Peru where they're building a natural gas pipeline that has a lot of human rights and environmental impacts. Um, but then I started to think that what really interests me more is um, sort of the enabling technologies that we've been studying in this class and that using wikis and some of the other Web 2.0 things we've been looking at, it would be better if there were really a place where people could sort of file a complaint in the court of public opinion about these issues and then it could be publicized. Um, so what I'm trying to do is start a website um, and I set up a demo here that just basically shows mock-ups. But 
the name is localife.org. Um, so the idea would be that people can just come, come to this website, um, and it would be similar to Wikipedia, but also uh, with um, more of a messaging, uh, message boards. And they could, for example, if Harvard Law student is traveling in Lebanon or South America, and they become aware of certain things that are going on in that country, they can post a report and you know put up their photos or um, video or just a description of what they know is going on. And then over time, as this sort of information accretes, uh, it could really become a resource for people to publicize things and to find out um, about what's going on. So I also made up a sample page, and I'm going to try to get the wikis and everything working. But the idea would be that uh, I would be similar to Wikipedia, but with this more narrow focus. Um, and people could, uh, whether they're human rights monitors or just people traveling, or if people felt comfortable as individuals, just posting things. And then other users could read it and sort of see if that corresponds with their understanding of the reality, whether they think the report is neutral or not. Um, these are taken from State Department reports. And that's another uh, aspect of the project, that it democratizes this process of reporting on political and rights situations. Um, so it's not just a handful of select groups and governments doing it based on their own agendas. Um, but people can file their own reports, and then if that rises to the level of government or group attention, then that's great. Um, so that's basically the idea, and I welcome all your feedback. So, Josh, this, it, you start with the idea of a specific problem you were concerned with in Peru. Yes. And then you went from that to this very much more general idea of a locus where people would file complaints. Right. Um, do you have a specific question or do you just want me to respond to that? Tell me why you were unhappy with the specific one. Um, well, I, I thought about it. and Tell me what the specific one was. Uh, the specific one was something I was uh, supposed to be working on uh, with a uh, human rights program here. Um, there's this massive uh, natural gas project in Peru, like I said, and it has a lot of implications uh, for indigenous people's rights and environmental impact in Peru. Um, but there's already a lot of, uh, you know, there's websites about it. They have um, detailed information there. So I wasn't sure whether what I could, anything I could do in this class, in this forum, would really add to that project, uh, add to what already exists out there, except for people don't really know about everything that exists out there. It's kind of lost in the internet. Um, and I thought maybe if there's one place where people come together and these, uh, using some of these filtering ideas, the information is pushed together, maybe that would help publicize either this issue or other issues like it. So who do you imagine using the space that you're imagining? Um, well, I guess that's part of... Uh, Here I am. I'm out there. I'm in the world. I'm, what am I? I'm looking for an issue. And I say, Josh's site has got a bunch of issues, and I'll go look and read that until I find an issue I'm excited about? Well, I see it more of like, oh, here at Harvard and at other great universities, people are always going out, uh, going on all these different missions and getting funding to go to all these places. And then it seems like all of that 
work they do, I don't know where it goes. Maybe it goes somewhere. Um, and people are traveling, and they're having the experiences. And there's also people in the countries who are working uh, maybe as local you know, human rights monitors or just political rights within the country, and they notice something. And so I think those are kind of the people I see using it. And then maybe the other more established people who work in these fields uh, can consult it as a data point in what they're doing. So in a sense, you're actually trying to empathize with the students who go to wherever on whatever kind of a trip and worry that something they've seen or observed or worked on is going to get lost, and you want to provide some way of making it live. Uh, yeah, in a sense, I think that's right. I know it doesn't fit uh, the empathic argument of, that was demonstrated by Eminem uh, in 8 Mile so well, A versus B, but I think that I was really more drawn to the sort of enabling other people to make their arguments um, for what I wanted to do. All right. Comments, opportunities, Juanita. I was wondering, who do you expect to benefit from this? Because, I mean, what do you want to, what's your goal? To change policy towards these countries or to just raise awareness or to just have like a escape valve for people of these countries? Um, I think it's just uh, a general benefit of having documentation um, and openness uh, in these areas. And I think in the long run, I would hope the people who are suffering from so, some sort of abuse would be the ones that benefit. Uh, I know in the short run it might not be safe for them to post certain things or something like that, but I think uh, the people who would be suffering in abuse would be the ones that I would hope to benefit. Because I think it would be... I mean, what would be different from your project from other projects that NGOs are doing and human rights activists is, is if it's only for Harvard students. You know, like Harvard students saw this and with all the prestige that Harvard students have, then that could make a difference in the web. Because, I mean, there are so many websites just like filing complaints about human rights violations and other sort of things. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good suggestion, maybe uh, limited to schools. I think maybe Harvard, just Harvard, would be a little too narrow, um, but maybe all universities or something like that. It's a good suggestion. I mean, along those lines, I don't know what... I still am having trouble figuring out what your goal is, even if it is for people who um, went abroad for the summer to, to post something on there, like I did. And I, you know, and I, I feel your frustration in terms of um, going to places and doing monitoring and doing all these reports, and I, I knew that they were going to wind up in a box someplace and, and never be seen again. I think in order to, to get past that point, though, with this, you, you have to be able to tell people that it's going to be marketed somewhere. So, I mean, this, this would be no different for me than, than my sending out an email to my family and friends about what I saw if, I don't, if only other Harvard students are going to be looking at it. You know what I mean? As opposed to the possibility that it could be used at some point to send into the, a report, you know, to, to the United Nations or whatever, um, the human rights commissions, et cetera. Right. I think that's a really good point um, and a great suggestion. Obviously, if it doesn't gain any traction and no one reads it and no one 
you know, rates other people's, or just we do, then it won't be effective. Um, but if it were to gain some sort of traction credibility, then I think those other, you know, governments or higher level NGOs would look to it and read it, and then it could make a difference. All right, Josh, tell us your email address. Uh, Jay Goodman. At law.org.edu. Law. All right, Thanks. thank you very much, Josh. All right, so I'd like to take the last 15 minutes of our class to do some uh, summing up and uh, ask you to be thinking what your summing thoughts might be as well. Uh, after class yesterday, I had a break. I had to do something at 4 o'clock, but uh, in the hour in between the end of this class and that, I went upstairs to our Ropes Gray Room to a meeting at which uh, Ila Gandhi and uh, Bill Urey and a whole bunch of people that are into negotiation and peacemaking and dispute resolution and nonviolence were gathered. And uh, I had this feeling I wish, I'd, I wish I'd gone sooner because what I was listening to was an articulation of the nonviolent protest philosophy of Gandhi, and it struck me that here was a wonderful example of an empathic approach. There were several things that struck me in the course of the panel. The first was the idea that we don't have enough conflict in the world. These, these dispute resolution experts, so to speak, were leading with the idea that there's not enough conflict in the world. And immediately I thought, whoa, wait a minute, that's not what I was expecting. They then go on to make the point that it's not the conflict that's the problem. It's the way we resolve the conflict that actually KB was just right or whoever the anonymous one was that I addressed as you yesterday, saying people like a fight. They like opposition. They like conflict. It's interesting. The question of uh, presented by an environment in which we don't have enough conflict is that all of it stays repressed and it boils up and bubbles up in ways that get all too readily out of hand. People talk to the people that think like them rather than talking to the people who think different. And so their emphasis was on the idea of resolving the conflict without violence. Then the second thought that struck was apparently Gandhi found that he had great trouble explaining his idea because people thought of it as a form of passivity, passive aggression. And he didn't think of it that way at all. And I feel the same in trying to articulate the idea of empathic argument. People think, oh, it's weak. It's like somehow too namby-pamby. It's too soft. Gandhi responded to that by trying to change the dialogue from a form of passivity to one of defiance. He speaks of his nonviolence as a form of political defiance. So that what was happening was that 
here was a group of people talking about strategies for working change in the government, change in the world, where the idea of change was to change government. So actually working at the highest levels of trying to bring about change in the world and studying the examples of people who had been successful with it, Gandhi being one, Gandhi a lawyer, Mandela being one, Mandela a lawyer. The idea of lawyers understanding this notion of defiance, the idea of standing up to authority, which takes immense courage to do, and do it without abusing, and in fact looking for the abuse coming from the other side as the very thing which, if you focus it properly, wins the argument for you. The idea that the core belief that you are reaching for in the audience of the court of public opinion is some common love of law, of justice, of fairness, of treating people decently. And the person who exhibits that and can exhibit that in the most courageous and confrontational way without abusing the other side, that is the essence of that notion. So here we are. We're at the end of our formal course here. And uh, in a sense, to follow through the metaphor of trial, uh, I'm feeling like the burden of our class was, is in some way to oppose the core sensibility of oppositional argument, which is so powerfully embedded that it's even hard to see the alternative. I mentioned in the opening the story of Hector and haven't made anything particular of it, but still loved the idea of Hector as a hero, classically, who somehow got changed in the process of history so that Hector became this bad thing. And I felt from the beginning that this, in a sense, is like law. The, the law that people love, that I actually feel was very much at the core of the spirit of America way back when we got formed on the frontier, this idea of government under law, not under men, the idea of the jury as the most democratic of decisional institutions. I feel like that idea has gotten debased over time in the way that Hector got debased and that law now is this hectoring thing. It's this abusive thing. It's this lawyer kind of meanly cross-examining picture. It's taking advantage at every turn and having the best shark in the business as the one who will eat through your enemy with blood and sinew in his teeth, and that's the one you want. That, that seems too bad to me. It seems expressive of a degraded state for law. I, I feel like we all are here because in some sense we love law. 
I would love the teaching of law to be not only expressive of the ideal, but expressive of the idea that you can practice law and feel good about yourself. You can make a good life practicing law because the practice of law in the ideal is exactly this form of defiance that is not abusive, that in fact is willing to understand the other argument and treat it with respect. So one of the trial lawyers who was a teacher to me would always use the same story to close his cases. It was like his regular closing. And it's one I came to like, and so I want to use it here with you. He would go through the whole case and be stalwart and strong and do all that stuff. But when he got to the end, he would stand in front of the jury and review where it had come and review how deeply he felt the responsibility of representing the position that he had been representing. But say to the jury, all right, now it's time for you to retire and make your decision. And we tell him the story about an old, wise Indian man who was being taunted by a young boy, arrogant kid, who was just teasing him. The kid comes up to the old man, and he's got his hands clasped, and he says to the old man, Old man, I have a bird in my hand. Is it alive or is it dead? And the old man thought that this kid was just out to embarrass him. If he said the bird was alive, the kid would crush it in his hands and show him. If he said it was dead, he'd open his hands and the bird would fly up into his face. So what he said was, my child, the bird, is in your hands. I need to sit down. Want to say anything? Yeah, I guess I just want to say thanks to all you guys. You've been really good sports this semester, going through a, a whole lot of uh, stuff that's probably none of us would have expected we were going to do right at the beginning of this semester. So, yeah, thanks for hanging in and speaking up and doing some really cool projects. All right, so this is the point at which you make the transfer. It's like you've got the credit. Now you've got to go do it. Thank you all very much. It's been a pleasure.
um, adverse possession of, of childcare or anything like that. So even if I've personally benefited, benefited from something, I don't think that it necessarily means we should keep putting the inequality on the next generation. Well, uh, LT, this one seems like a wonderful example for us because as you put your argument forward, I don't sense a lot of empathy in the room. What I sense is that almost everyone has a kind of reaction against you and that as they go, they articulate them. And somehow your challenge would be to embrace all of those, somehow to articulate them in a way that recognizes each of those feelings and then having done that makes your play for visibility. But you can feel that if this is the court that you're up against, you're on the defense the whole way. The question would be, how could you make your presentation so that you didn't find yourself on the defense? Okay. Kara. I was, just before you said that, I was actually wondering to what extent you wouldn't benefit from focusing less on where you're coming from and more on the plan you're advocating. Because I actually think the cafeteria plan sounds like a really cool thing. I hadn't heard of it. And having worked in the corporate world, I wouldn't have minded picking from certain benefits that I knew, you know, I know I'm not going to use the child care. I know I'm not going to use this or that. I don't really care about this. But wouldn't it be cool if I had educational credits or something instead? So I think you can appeal to a lot of the people that maybe aren't going to sympathize automatically with you by just focusing on the goal as opposed to where you're coming from. And then you appeal to your own base, obviously, with your own causes. But everybody else can pick why it's a good idea for them. Okay. I was going to say much of the same thing. I actually am very empathetic towards your desire not to have children. I don't know whether I want kids or not. But I found that sort of in the way that we've been talking about it today, I felt the need to sort of defend the parents. And I think if you can keep it out of uh, having kids, not having kids, you know, that sort of they've made a choice kind of uh, setting that it will, you know, and if you focus more on the plan and saying everyone should be able to, to have, you know, equal benefits, and the more you can keep it over there, the less, I think, people will feel defensive. I actually agree with you completely, but I I have two questions. The first is um, I think one of the biggest issues is that these cafeteria plans uh, impose adverse selection inefficiencies because uh, like the cream of the crop of the insurance market selects into different ones and instead of competing to offer the best insurance, you compete to get the best candidates, which kind of forcing everyone to the same pool of void. So that's one issue I talk about. But my main question for you uh, is if companies are profit-maximizing kind of entities uh, and they're going beyond what the government mandates in order to provide these, uh, what you would call subsidies, um, and it would appear that these subsidies would maximize their, maximize their profits, so why shouldn't they be allowed to do that? Maybe, for example, this is one mechanism, maybe we need to pay uh, married couples with children more because um, they have like a hobby, kids, that's very demanding and that uh, competes 
for their time with their work, and we, their time's more valuable at home, so we need to pay them more to come to work. Uh, in terms of, comp comp I'm going to just focus in on one thing you said, which is companies are going to be maximizing the bottom line. Uh, I have the impression that a lot of times companies are doing this not because <coughs> it has a lot of impact on an individual employee or on the employees they attract, but because it's, it's a general PR strategy. And you have a lot of feminist groups really kind of lobbying hard for these kind of things uh, because of the effects they have on women in the workplace or the perceived effects they have on women in the workplace. And so I, I would say that this is more of a result of the uh, invisibility issue that the feminist groups who are lobbying for this hard have kind of convinced everyone that it's a, you know unqualified good thing to subsidize parents and there's no one really talking on the other side. So I don't think companies are necessarily doing this to maximize their bottom line, but for public relations. And if there is kind of an awareness of both sides of the issue, I have no problem with companies choosing to subsidize parents and making this decision. But I think every company should be making this decision consciously. And it should be doing so while balancing both sides instead of just hearing from one lobby and not the other. Okay. Well, okay, LT, tell us your email address. It's uh, L-C-I-A-C-C-I-O at law.harvard. Okay. There's some interesting stuff on the board that you can look at. Do when you get a chance. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, we need to take a tape break and then we'll be right back.